0: Yeah, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source software for the long haul and whatever that means. Very excited to have our guest on today. Before we get on to introducing her, I want to make sure that you, oh, listeners, are aware who else is on this podcast. I am Richard Litauer. Hi, everyone. And we also have today our other host, Amanda Cassari. Amanda, how are you?
1: I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here for this chat today.
0: As am I. Why are we excited? Because we have the wonderful guest, Melissa Mendonça, which I hope I pronounced correctly, calling in today from Florianopolis, Brazil. Melissa, come by, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm super happy to be here and also big fan of the podcast and you both so super excited to talk today.
0: Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on because I always love talking to developers. A lot of the people we talk to tend to be in Ospos or working in policy or on really interesting apps that are trying to solve all the problems, but those aren't the people doing the actual work. No offense to everyone. I've already interviewed. Talking to developers is really, really fun. So we have Melissa, who's a senior developer experience engineer at QuantSight in Florianopolis. Melissa, tell me a bit more about what that means for you.
2: Yeah, so this is hard to explain sometimes, but it's something that we recently converged to, let's say. So I started at QuantSight two and a half years ago and I come from a mathematics background. So I was working as a professor at the university here in Florian teaching math, but my research was very focused on applied mathematics. And so I was a big user of open source scientific libraries. So such as NumPy, SciPy, Matplotlib, Pandas, and all the other stuff. And I realized over time, so I've always been super involved with the open source ecosystem in general and free software and Brazil has a big free software community. And so I realized over time that this is what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to do research, although I love teaching, I wanted to contribute to something more. And I felt like I could have more impact working on open source software for science than I could at research. So I decided to take the plunge and I changed careers at 38 and dropped my university job and changed into developer job or software engineer job at QuantSight. So over time, that has evolved. And now I am working, focusing more on developer experience and actually contributor experience. Because since QuantSight is a company very focused on sustaining and helping maintain open source projects, We are trying to help new contributors, people who want to do the move from contributor to maintainer, understanding what that means and how we can help them get there, how we can help improve leadership in our open source projects and all that. Things So I'm a developer, but I'm also doing a lot of work around policies, around organizational governance and all of that ecosystem. So it is a very, I would say it's not a common role, not very usual to see that in companies, but I really, really enjoy what I'm doing.
1: I love all of the things that you're bringing into the fact of like, I'm a developer and a developer in open source means all of this. And I'm just super curious when you were making the decision to switch from one role to another, was that your plan? Was that the scope of the things you thought you would be working on? Or have you learned that the skills that you need and what you have to be able to do to get things done, has that changed over time?
2: I think it has changed over time as I realized that I could actually be useful doing this work. Because in the beginning, and I think this is common for a lot of people, is that you think open source is only focused on code. And there's a lot of things that contribute to that, especially the language around core developer or the core contributor or how code contributions are more valued over documentation, over policy, over community contributions. And this is not a criticism of any project. I think this is something that happened over time and how things evolved. And so it is something that you need to actively fight against. And I think one side offered me the opportunity to do that, to kind of say, hey, this is not all that we want to do. We also want to do community. We also want to do technical writing. We also want to do design. We also want to do community contributions that are outside of what GitHub offers you. And this has been a revelation for me because I didn't know this was possible. So I guess because I always loved teaching and I always loved engaging with other people and having this kind of human relationship over code. Code is great, but I prefer having this relationship over people and kind of understanding what they need and how I can best service them and how we can interact and work together. So I think this has been a revelation. And I think that one of the things I love about Quantside, which is that it showed me that this is possible and like I could actually do that work. And so I'm very grateful not only to Quantside, but also to CDI who is funding this work currently. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that later, but this is something that is new. I don't think this focus on community building and DEI and improving how people can contribute and offering them different paths to contribution. This is something that has been coming up in several different communities right now. So I'm super happy to see that.
0: I love that. I think we've only had one other person on here who was explicitly a developer experience engineer. And I think it was Michael Rogers from Protocol Labs. There's not many of them out there. If there are other ones and I've forgotten you, I'm so sorry. One of the questions that pops into my head to make it easier for me to understand, hopefully others as well, is that there is a whole nother field out there, which is called developer experience. And that's different than developer and experience engineer. Can you break down for me what that difference means on a day-to-day basis for you?
2: Yeah, so for us, I think a lot of the work that we're focusing on is first on community and people and helping them get to where they want to get. So if we are focusing on contributor experience or if we are onboarding people into our projects, kind of figuring out what they want from the project. Because one thing that is very common is to assume that people who come into open source projects have a goal of doing X And I don't know what X is, but you should never assume. People come because of different backgrounds and they have different goals and lives and maybe they want to... You know, improve their CV or maybe they want to learn something from the code or maybe they want to learn how to engage with big projects. And it's all of those are valid and we want to accommodate for all of those. So we want to understand where people come from and meet them where they are. So there's the whole human aspect of that. And then the engineering aspect is focused on we are paid to do this and we should make it easier for volunteers to do their work. So if there's anything we can do in terms of pushing pull requests forward, rebasing their pull requests or helping them get through with developer tools, improving CLI interface tools for them. We are currently experimenting with Gitpod, which is a tool that allows you to do all your development on the web browser. So there's several ways that we can improve engineering for them or make those tools available so that they are more, it's easy for them to contribute and they need to spend less time learning about tools and more dedicating to what they actually want to do, which is either develop code or write documentation and do whatever. But then we need to scaffold those contributions and make sure that they can actually reach their goals inside the projects. So that's how I see the engineering part is making people's lives easier.
1: When I think about when we talked so much about friction that exists in communities and working beyond one collaborator or working within a community, it feels like so much of the things you're focused on is really enabling projects to move beyond one person or even a small group of people to a wider group of people who may they may not even know that they need as a part of their community and their group. And as you were talking, Melissa, I can't help but thinking how some of the projects you've talked about, NumPy, Pandas, PyPy, Matplotlib. These are core fundamental pieces of the numerical computing ecosystem, right? Especially for Python, but even extended beyond Python. We like to like translate them over to other languages as well, connect them across. And they're not new. These are very well-established mathematical computational libraries that have core groups of committers that have been around for a while. And is that the majority of your portfolio that you work with and work on? Or do you work across different kinds of projects that have different maturity lengths or kinds of contributors? All of these things just seem like different challenges depending on the legacy maturity of the project. I'm just curious about how those work out for you and how you face those.
2: Yeah, so we have the current grant that we're working on with CCI focuses on NumPy, SciPy, Matplotlib, and Pandas. So those are the main focuses, the projects that we're working on. But there are within Kwan side and within like other people who are working on this area, they have other projects that they are working on on different stages of development. Maybe they are just getting started and building their communities. Maybe they are just engaging new card contributors. I think it, it varies a lot. But for me, I have to say that my largest experience has been on these big projects, which do have a long history and the long development cycle. And it is a challenge, both because of just the sheer code base, which is huge. And then getting to understand all of that does. I don't think anyone understands what all of it does, which is in a way good, (laughs) But in another sense, it is hard because we also want to plan for sustainability. Of course, we want to make sure that these are redundant, that we have enough documentation for other people to step up and take maintenance and understand what it means to participate on those projects. And I understand that they can be intimidating. So my own personal history about that is that. Since I have been doing applied math for a while, I was a longtime user of NumPy and I had been following NumPy discussion, which is the mailing list that we use for communication for about 10 years, and I never had the courage to actually send a message to the mailing list. So I was seeing these people talk about it. And I used to think, oh, I don't have anything to contribute. There's nothing new that I can say here. These people are just so much more intelligent than me. And when I started working at Quantside and I started contributing to NumPy, I realized, no, actually, there are a lot of things that I could do here. And I do you have things to add to the project? And it was just so incredible to be able to work with the people that you admire and that you've been interacting kind of for a long time. But it is, I understand that it's challenging and that is intimidating. And because they are such fundamental projects, it is sometimes hard to get people on board. And so this is one of the barriers. This is one of the things that we want to break is that making sure that people understand that these are, yes, they are important. are core projects in the scientific Python ecosystem. But at the same time, they are projects just like any other. And we do need people. We do need maintainers. We do need redundancy. We do want more people to approach these projects. So yeah, I think experience of working with projects that are so old and big has taught me a lot about the dynamics of how people work and how new people try to join these projects and how we can improve on that.
0: I really like hearing about better documentation, better community efforts, about breaking through barriers to enable more people to contribute to projects, to get past the friction of helping people feel like they're able to work there. They're able to help the project out. And a lot of the projects mentioned are awesome projects that already have massive contributor bases, which is really, really cool. You're mentioning, let's say NumPy, that's from NumFocus. They also have a whole team working on this, right? We've had Leah Sailin on the podcast a few times to talk about how she does that. And it's clear to me why Chen Zuckerberg initiative would be interested. That's CZI, right? They are a philanthropy dedicated towards lowering the barriers for science. One of the questions I have for you as I'm listening to you talk about all this excellent gospel of open source, helping people out and being a better place for everyone to contribute, is this kind of weird question that I have at the back of my head, which is what's in it for Quonsight for your work? Because I want to enable this work for other projects. And I don't know how we can fund other people like you to also do this work elsewhere. So I'm curious, what's the funding model and how sustainable is that anyway? It seems like you have a good job, which is great. But what's it like?
2: Yeah, so Quantside is kind of two companies in one, and there are several ways of explaining this. So I'm gonna try to be simple, and I hope I'm getting this right. But so we have Quantside LLC, the main entity of Quantside, which is focused on data and providing services around data science, machine learning. And engaging with companies that need service around open source projects. And so they may need custom tailored solutions around the open source projects that we work on. They may need some data solutions and we provide that to them. So it's a consulting company. And then there's another part of the company, which is Quantite Labs, which is an open source labs focused company. So we try to focus on maintaining, sustaining, and helping contribute to open source, different open source projects. Focus mainly on the open source high data ecosystem, but we do have some work done on stdlib.js, for example. So JavaScript. Some folks are working with other ecosystems, and so this it really depends on the projects that we have to work on. So OneSide Labs really focuses on that, and I think it comes from the vision of a couple of people. So mainly, I would say Travis Oliphant, who's the CEO of OneSide, and the creator of NumPy and founder of SunPyPy as well. And also Ralph Gummers, who started QuantSight Labs and now Tanya Allard is also co-directing QuantSight Labs with him. And they have this vision of helping sustain and maintain open source software, specifically the PyData ecosystem. And so that's how we work. We have this client projects that help sustain the company. And we also have funding coming from grants and different funding opportunities focused on open source projects. So there's mixed funding opportunities that come to the company. I don't know if that answers your question or if you want more details.
0: No, it does. It does. It's one of those things where it's sort of a a long approach, right? So for the consultancy, it helps them to have a healthy ecosystem. A healthy ecosystem needs work. And someone like Travis knows this. I feel like I've said this before, but we've also had Travis on the podcast, which is great. So it's really cool to see that vision go through. I also love hearing the word sustaining from anyone who's not me. So I'm just really grateful for you. you. using that word a lot, thank you. So that helps me understand a bit more where you're coming from. One of the things I'm really curious about, maybe you're not the best person to ask this to, but I really want to know, how can we have more of you? It's easy to have more developers. You just have to do these things, right? Have better documentation, encourage code of conduct encourage DEI. It's put a lot of effort into making sure everyone feels seen and heard. But how do we put more effort into making people who make everyone feel seen and heard? Any ideas?
2: Yes, I do have ideas. And the first one is credit. We need to make sure that people who do contribution outside of code are credited and that they are valued inside open source projects. And so I think this is asking open source developers and people who are focused on specifically writing code to also do this work of community and engaging people and onboarding people and whatever. It's too much. It's too much for one person. It's too much for me, let alone for someone who's also writing code or doing code reviews or doing whatever. So I think we need to make sure that we have multiple paths to contribution in open source projects, not only code, but whatever else that means. So maintaining an open source project project involves so much more. So not only code, but reviewing, engaging people, maintaining the community, maybe moderating communication channels maybe doing code of conduct work, doing outreach, organizing sprints, doing documentation, not only user documentation, but contributor documentation, doing policy governance. It's just too much for one person. And that's what we're currently asking of maintainers of open source projects. So I don't think that's fair and I don't think that's doable. (laughs) So what ends up happening is that people do this badly. And this is sad for the open source projects and said for the people who are involved who maybe end up in burnout or they are tired, they just want to drop everything because it's too much to ask for one person. So I think we should think about diversifying these paths for contribution. But for that, we need to go beyond GitHub. We need to go beyond the current metrics that we have for open source. We need to go beyond the current credit system and reputation system that we have for open source contribution. I think as we
1: all know, Melissa, everything you just said was absolute music to my ear. It's like, I can't agree anymore. I guess we've had several different guests. I've talked about this at length, but I'm really curious. So for you, when you think about that kind of work, again, for these large, established, critical, centralized projects, is there anything different you're thinking about being able to help actually enact all of these changes? Or is there anything that you have to kind of move away from previously established patterns? Can you tell us about the changes that you're thinking about for that or new techniques you would encourage other people to lose? I love following you on Twitter because I learn new things all the time about community management, contributor experience, working with globally dispersed geographic communities. And I'm just curious, I was like, so for the things that you've learned, what are the things you would recommend for others, especially for large established projects?
2: So I think one of the things that we've learned and seen in these open source projects is just the sheer amount of unspoken knowledge and rules that go into maintaining an open source project. And so we're trying to capture all that. And when I say we, I say my team. So currently I'm working with Noah Tamir and Inessa Pawson, and they are working also as, as we called it in the grant contributor experience leads. So these are the people who are engaging with these four open source communities, NumPy, SciPy, by Lib, and Pandas. So we are splitting four people, sorry, three people into four projects to try to push those things forward. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of unspoken rules. And so if you can document everything from governance to policies to processes and workflows Coming initially from release guides and pull request guidelines and pull request review guidelines, communication guidelines and other internal processes that you might have, but also how to move from contributor to maintainer how to move into leadership, how to go to the steering council, what is needed to go beyond that. And all of those, I think, are super important. Those are lessons that I've learned. And I think one of the goals of this whole grant and the work that we're doing is to document how the contributor experience lead role would work in other projects. So this is something that is in progress. So I can say that we'll have news about this soon, I think. So the idea is that we have a set of processes and ideas that folks can take on. And maybe this is also the time to mention this. I don't see the contributor experience lead role as overcoming or replacing the community engagement or the community management role. I think those are complementary roles. And if you have a community manager at your project already, you can also have a contributor experience lead. So that's what I would go for other projects. How can that look in volunteer, like 100% volunteer-based projects? I don't know yet we are paid, we are getting compensation for this and we are putting a lot of hours into this work. So I still don't know. Of course, for this big project, such as Non-By-Side, lip and Pandas, I do think we need to have payrolls for this. And I will advocate for this very strongly for other projects that are volunteer based. I think as long as we have enough documentation, guidance and mentoring, we can also do this, maybe a different scale, maybe on a different level. But this is something we should aim for is having these people in leadership roles that they can actually, we called it Contributor Experience Lead, for a reason, <laughs> because we wanted these people to be in leadership roles in the sense that they can actually change processes and governance and, and they help guide people into sustainable practices in these open source projects.
1: I'd like to ask about the 2020 NumPy paper, which I realized was before your time working in your current role, but if you've been on the list for 10 years prior to that. So for those who are listening and please describe this in your own words as well. But what I'm talking about was in 2020, there was a paper released in Nature called Array Programming with NumPy and the release of it. And I'm sorry, I don't know the exact number of authors right now. There is a long list of authors. This was a little contentious in the community because of NumPy is a very large project. There is a large group of contributors and a large community, right? And when the intersection of open source meets academia and publishing, there is still this really sensitive space. And I feel like when we're thinking, I mean, we're talking about credit contributions, who is recognized, you come from an academic research background, you have a lot of experience in this. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe give more of your perspective on kind of what happened with the community in 2020. How have you seen things change maybe since then? Or what else needs to be addressed that maybe isn't being addressed yet?
2: I think it's really important that we talk about this. And I think this is something that has been, it was a stressful time for us. I was already involved in the community and I was involved in all that happened. So I totally see the criticism and I understand it and I value it for what it brought. And I think, honestly, I do think that the current CCI work that we're doing is a fruit of that discussion. So all of what we're doing now is also thinking about how can we address this question? How can we address this criticism and how can we make things better? So paper that was submitted, I do understand that it was fair in the sense that these were actually the people who were engaged in building NumPy, i example me I wasn't involved before so I would never expect to be listed in that and I think this is historical snapshot of the things that were happening before what we're trying to do is exactly improve things going forward so how can we change that how can we make this better and how can we make sure that this never happens again and so this is part of the work that we're doing now I think it is great that we had the community pointing this out to us and it is great that we had people who were willing to listen and who were willing to do the work and kind of how can we make this better? How can we improve things? How can we change things? And part of the work, a big part of the work that we're doing right now comes from the backlash that we had from this paper, which I think is good. So goes to show that also you can have good things from Twitter stores. <laughs> In a sense. And so I do think that ultimately it was a force for good. So there's a lot of things that we're doing differently. And so just to share, how do we onboard new people? How do we do outreach? How do we do sprints focused on underrepresented groups and open source How do we reach out to people who are outside of the global north? How do we engage with people who speak different languages? All of that is, I would say, very, very in the front of all of the work that we do right now. So, yeah, I think this was an important point for our community, even though it was very stressful at the time for all of us because it was kind of unexpected. I think at the end we had a positive outcome from it. Thank you. And I appreciate talking about it, frankly, because I do also want to
1: include for folks who may not as be aware with open science or academic research that it is important still to have published work around very fundamental open source packages. Part of the reason for that isn't necessarily for the publishing in itself, but it's because scientific work and academic work tends to cite scientific papers and peer-reviewed papers. So if we want to understand how open source software is being used and where it impacts and where it affects if we don't have the fundamental papers to reference then we don't get to see where those are dependent so i do think it was very important for this paper to come out i realize it was a maybe a a pivotal point for the community and i appreciate all the work you've been doing since then
0: Can you talk a bit about how CZI got involved with your work and what their goals are and what that means for you that's different than the work that you were doing before? Like, how are you changing in order to adapt towards those goals?
2: Yeah. So I think one of the big merits, the current open source work that we're doing with CZI, so the funding that we got from them, is that they explicitly target things that are not new features, but mostly maintaining and sustaining and documentation, policies, governance, and all of that thing that you usually don't get funding for. And so I feel like that's very innovative and very understanding of how open source communities work. And so, again, I'm very grateful for the work that they're doing in that space. So I think one of the things that we had before, so for example, the last CCI, we had a couple of CCI grants already for NumPy. So the first one, I was involved as a technical writer and that's how I got hired because I was writing documentation. So already this was different because they were hiring people to work on documentation, which is not very common for open source projects. And the second one, we were focusing on sustainability and maintaining f 2 pi which is a tool that is in the deep inside the work that other open source projects work on. Maybe they don't even know that they're using Fortran in the backend or that this is something that they depend on, but it is. And so it's like a fundamental brick in the building of open source scientific Python software. But then this grant, which is focused on DEI practices and sustainability and making sure that people understand how to engage and how to build communities around an open source project in a way that is healthy and incorporates DEI practices at the core of it. I think this is very new. I don't think this is something that a lot of funding organizations do. And so I think the biggest impact has been that you're able to focus on that. You're able to focus on specific outreach. You're able to focus on practices that, Make sure that people feel safe, that they feel belonging, that they feel engaged with the community in a healthy way, even though they are working as a volunteer. And so I have a lot of thoughts also about volunteer work and open source and how that relates to the Global South, to people who are care who don't necessarily have the free time to engage in open source projects. And I could talk for a whole podcast about this, but <laughs> I think in within the space that we're working on, which is making sure that people who have that opportunity, who have that time want to engage with our projects, at least we can make sure that they have a good experience And that they can actually engage with our projects and feel safe and feel recognized and feel like they have credit for it.
0: So I love that. And I could talk about that for a long time too. So you're with your friends here. I agree. It's awesome. One of the questions I have, and I really love it earlier that you said community, what manager lead? It's a really interesting role title that I haven't heard thrown around a lot. And I really like that because it points out that community managers are not second class citizens. They're first class citizens of open source, right? Because they're the people who actually enable other people to do stuff. And I'm really biased here because I am one, but you know, it's an interesting point that I think a lot of developers haven't thought about. They think of community managers as being someone who's like an. And, and, and when we think about the global south and when we think about underprivileged groups, this is often the case. It's kind of together with that, where it's like, oh, yeah, those people are welcome too. also, sure, extra, you know, and it's like not really there. So one of the questions I have around sustainability, which I think CZI is helping to address with allocating money towards these issues, is that we're not just hoping to fund these places for a short amount of time, but a lot of philanthropic grants are, interested in the long-term implications of engineering different structural systems that allow us to continue to have better processes that then can stay in place after the funding dries up because funding then gets allocated elsewhere. So I'm curious for you, what are your thoughts on what the future of community management and community development look like for those people who are entering the role for those projects? Will there always be a large team of community managers for every single open source project? How does that look for you?
2: Yeah, I don't think we have, I'm going to be very honest, I don't think we have a complete answer right now. Just having a plan for sustainability in the sense that these people who do this kind of work, they are credited just as other people who do code or who do documentation contributions or who show up in GitHub I think that is important. So a lot of people approach our projects because they want to have their contributions listed on their CV. Or on LinkedIn. And I think that is extremely valuable and extremely fair as a reason for contributing to these open source projects. And I would like to provide them with tools that they are able to say, this is what I contributed to this project. This is what I did. And it is valuable. So I don't think we have that now because most of the metrics that we use, and this is something that Amanda, I think is very acutely aware of, is that, We are focusing on GitHub metrics and we are focusing on the contributions and pull requests and reviews and things like that. And there is so much more. One example that we have, and it's not even about community management, but I think showcases a lot of what we're talking about is design. And so we have a lot of people working on design for open source. And they usually do their mockups or initial contributions through Figma. And people do comments and they say This is what we want. This is what we should do and whatever. And maybe if their final contribution gets captured on GitHub because they post the final logo, but all the other conversations and all the other engagement and all the other work that they do is just not captured through GitHub. We have another very clear example and very concrete example that comes from NumPy, which is our NumPy survey. And so we did this for two years in a row and we're organizing the third. We have someone who has been engaged with the NumPy survey organization team, imagining the survey, designing everything and coming up with solutions and questions and how do we organize this? And this is everything around the survey is captured in other places, not on GitHub. And so how can we make sure they get credit for their contributions? They're doing a lot of work, they're dedicating many, many hours to this, but it just doesn't get captured. And so I do think that credit is something that we need to figure out. I would not like that this is something that drives us forward. We need to focus on, but ultimately it is, it is something that people depend on. It is something that people need to listen on their CVs. It is something that people need to play in the capitalistic game. And I'm going to bring that word into the conversation next. But yes, this is something that we need to do. And so how do we make sure that people are able to play that game fairly? This is still a question that I have. I don't know exactly the answer. I think we're trying to figure out answers, but yeah, I don't know. Yes, I have so
1: many things. We could talk about this for hours. I love the bringing up too of the, I'm such a big fan of individual communities and groups and ecosystems honestly running their own surveys because I feel like there's this, self-power piece that then comes with that, that the community gets to define itself and release its own baselines about itself rather than being sampled externally, rather than being part of a large platform, mega big data. Sampling, there's just so much richer information and so much ability for representation and for communities defining what's important to them. And so I love, I love that it's funded and for critical infrastructure ecosystems. This is the thing I would love to see more funding and consistent carrying out time over time of understanding. You put in so much work, you specifically, Melissa, I know, but all the people you work with as well, you put in so much work around accessibility and inclusion and diversity. And how do you know if that's having an impact unless you ask people and understand how it's changing over time? I just feel like it's such a worthwhile continued investment that we need to be making and at the project and the ecosystem and community level.
0: I couldn't agree more. And thank you, Amanda, for the shout out and idea of running your own surveys. And thank you, Melissa, for saying that you've been doing that at Numpy. That's great. Unfortunately, we are running up on time, but we could talk forever. We've taken at least half of this podcast talking about how we wish we could talk forever, and now it's time to end up. So, Melissa, before we move on to a few final questions and spotlight, I want to ask, what are you most excited about coming up soon? What's getting you motivated at the moment to help out sustainability?
2: Well, I could say a lot of things, but I'm going to say Python Brazil, which is our local PyCon because historical reasons made us change the name. So we call it Python Brazil instead of PyCon Brazil, but it's the same thing. And it's going to be in Manaus. So it's going to be in the Amazon. And it means a lot for us as a community as it's going to be the first in-person conference that we do after the pandemic. And it's also going to be the first first conference that we do in the north of Brazil, which is off-center in a way because all of the conferences get around Sao Paulo, Rio, which are the main hubs for technological development in Brazil, let's say something like that. So I think it's going to be very important, not just because this is going to be the first time that we meet after the pandemic, but it's going to be very important in terms of engaging the community outside of the usual axes that we work on in Brazil. So I'm very, very excited about that.
0: That sounds awesome. That is really cool. Manaus is like the gateway to the Amazon. When you finally do have a conference in Piranha territory, do let me know. I would love to show up for that. That would be the coolest thing ever. Unlikely, but you know, you never know. Melissa, this has been great. Where can people follow you online that can learn more about not just NumPy, NumFocus, Matplotlib, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these great projects, but like your work and your words.
2: I think the easiest way is to follow me on twitter so twitter.com slash melissa wm otherwise we do have a lot of work going on on numby side by and panda so you can look for announcements in any of those four projects related to Nocomer meetings, all the work that we do, engaging new people who want to contribute, who want to come up and see what the project is about. You are always welcome to join any of our meetings. We have several open meetings going on for all of those four projects. So yeah, make sure that you join if you're interested and feel free to ask questions either as a DM on Twitter or engaging with any of the projects communication tools.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Muerto obrigado. for so the whole conversation. This was excellent, but don't leave yet. This is the part of the show where we talk about something completely unrelated. So spotlight is where we point out people, projects and things, which we believe should get more credit. Okay. okay I guess it's not that unrelated. Amanda, what is your spotlight today?
1: Right, so keeping up with my tradition, finding papers and books and pamphlets and zines. Someone please send me zines because I would like more of those to be able to review and recommend. I'm going to be recommending a 2014 paper from the Mining Software Repository Conference called The Promises and Perils of Mining GitHub. We will list out the full list of authors in the show notes and I'm not going to attempt the names right now because I don't want to disrespect anybody and I need to work on them. But this is a hat tip from Julia Farioli, a former guest of the show and my partner in Good Trouble. The reason I wanted to spotlight this today was because reading through a 2014 paper that was analyzing 2013 data and community contributors and people who had repositories on GitHub paints a very different picture of what GitHub looked like and what GitHub data looked like then versus now. So one of the fascinating pieces I found when reading through this was just the idea that only about 10% of the projects So repositories that had more than one committer to them used a pull request model. So the idea that a platform could be fundamentally shifting what we think of as good practice in open source in eight years is fascinating to me. And I'm sure there's other insights in there. So again, it's the Promises and Perils of Mining GitHub 2014 paper from MSR. We will post it in the show notes.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. That is awesome. My spotlight today is Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, Life and Language in the Amazon Jungle by Daniel Everett. This was a really foundational book for me when I first read it in university as a linguistic student for multiple reasons, mainly because the Piraha, who I mentioned briefly earlier, have some of the coolest language structures that we know of on the planet. It's a small group of indigenous Amazonians in the rainforest who don't have numbers or colors or a past tense but they can sing and whistle their language and drum it and hum it, which is way better than what I can do with English. So very, very exciting intelligibly. They can do that intelligibly. And so it's a really interesting book. It's also interesting from a Christian perspective, because it's from a linguist who went there with an Institute of linguistics in order to go and be a missionary. And after 10 years in the jungle realized what am I doing here? Which for me is really, really fascinating because, well, we can talk about that in another podcast. Anyway, anyway, Really love this book, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes by Dan Everett. and I have links to an NPR podcast or excerpt if you want to check that out. Melissa, what is your spotlight today?
2: I would first thank you for that because I think the pidaha as a great example of the things that we are missing by focusing on a colonial perspective of the global south and specifically Brazil. And so this is, thank you so much for mentioning that. I want to mention someone who was pivotal to all of the work that I do right now. So I want to mention Ralph Gommers, who is someone who first sponsored me and mentored me and keeps mentoring me right now. And who is someone who I think made a difference on the entire ecosystem just by his vision and understanding of what we could do to improve what's happening right now on these projects and focusing on these and focusing on how can we engage more people and just, I'm so grateful that we have him as a mentor and a colleague right now. And so I just want to mention, I think he doesn't get enough credit for the things that he does. That's what I want to mention. If I can mention someone else, I would also mention the Scientific Python Initiative which is a project that has been going for some while. And it's trying to kind of get together, join the Scientific Python projects in one big umbrella and trying to coordinate actions and future projects and how we can better work together to kind of develop consistency, but also understanding of all of these projects and how we can best move forward. And I think that is amazing as an initiative and how we can imagine this work going forward and not repeating ourselves, but kind of making sure that we profit from each other's experience and understanding of what the open source ecosystem is.
0: Awesome. Those are two excellent spotlights. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. Listeners, if you enjoy this, and if you have any comments, please let us know. So one, you can join in on Twitter. Again, it's Melissa WM and it's Sane OSS or Rich Lit and whatever Amanda's is. I think it's A. Caseri. A. M. Caseri. A. A. M. Caseri. I was very close. So do ping us on Twitter. We're happy to talk. If you want to email instead, podcast at Sane OSS. .org. We'll get to all the hosts of this podcast. We also have a Discord at Discord as it's OSS.org if you want to go on and talk about things on a Discord-like setting. If you actually like this podcast and feel like rating things for no obvious reason, just like putting hearts on stuff, feel free and do so on iTunes, on Apple, on Spotify, all places where podcasts are lovingly wrapped, sold, and given out for free. Besides those things, if you have other guests who should come to this podcast, do let us know as well. If you have thoughts and so forth, share it widely, please. I don't say this end conversation because I like talking fast. I say it because these are all things that help us get the word out more. That software sustainability is important. And with that, thank you so much, Melissa. Looking forward to seeing where everything goes and to seeing more accreditation in open source and in general. And this was really enjoyable. Take care and good luck.